The scripture this morning is found in Revelation 21, 23 to 27. Revelation 21, 23 to 27. And the city had no need of the sun, neither of the moon, uh, to shine in it. For the glory of God did lighten it, and the Lamb is the light thereof. And the nations of them that are saved shall walk in the light of it, and the kings of the earth do bring their glory and honor into it. And the gates of it shall not be shut at all by day, for they, there shall be no light, no night there. And they shall bring glory and honor of the nations into it. And there shall in no wise enter into anything that defileth, neither whatsoever worketh abomination or maketh a lie, but they which are written in the Lamb's book of life. Dean has the, the study this morning, our message, entitled, Looking Through a Window into Heaven. Again, I want to thank Brenda for coming up with these beautiful pictures um, that match the sermon. She does this each week for us that I'm here. I'm the only one that doesn't get to see them, so I've already looked at them, however. Okay. Let's just bow your heads with me for just a moment. Our loving Lord, we're thankful that we can be in your house today, worshiping you, our Lord and Savior the one that gives us the white robe of righteousness that allows our entrance into the kingdom. Today we'll look at, is it grace or is it merit? Help us today. And please have the speaker step aside as we open the word. In Jesus' name, amen. This morning, if we could, I'd like to put on some new glasses and look through a window. If we could in metaphor, prophetic window, to see if we can look forward to who might be in heaven. Basically, the characters we build here is the only thing we take to heaven. Not our houses, not our lands, not our cars, but just our character, not our bank account. So this morning, we would like to use some well-known Bible stories and parables, but look at it through new glasses, through a window, into the heaven above in the future. Again, I ask you, have you forgotten that you have an invitation to the greatest banquet ever given? Do you know where your invitation is? You have received it. Have you misplaced it? My friends, you must not miss this event. It is the culmination of our life's existence on this planet. Your invitation is found in Revelation 19.9. And he saith unto me, Write, blessed are they which are called unto the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he saith unto me, These are the true sayings of God. There it is. There's your invitation from Jesus to be there on that glad day in the earth made new. Of a truth, there is no place else in the entire universe where sin has invaded an entire planet and an entire people. 
as life unfolds before us, it demonstrates that we, are, that we belong to a sinful race. Angel visitors from the eternal heaven above need but take a brief glance at a newspaper, turn on the TV set for a few moments, and they see that we indeed have a fallen world and fallen people. Despite any congratulatory statements by mankind that he can improve the world, this world and his people are on a fast-paced train going downhill to destruction unless someone intervenes. Sin is not just a social problem. It is a transgression against heaven and against the Creator God for which we all stand accountable to God. Sin came and fixed an immeasurable gulf between God and our sinful race. This gulf mandates some form of salvation. The gulf cries out for a way out for mankind and cries for mercy and grace from God. The answer is too sublime for mortal imagination to conceive that God would offer himself as sacrifice for our sin. This is too stupendous for human skill and knowledge to have brought forth. How shall we be saved? Heaven sent no definite answer until that starry night over Bethlehem when the angels in the heavens announced the birth of the baby king fresh out of heaven. O mystery of mystery, how can it be? He was fully human as though not at all God, and he was fully God as though not at all human. God invaded our world in the form of a man. He came because we are holy without righteousness and we are under sentence of death. In order for man to be saved, God must do two things for us. He must provide a perfect righteousness, and he must remove the sentence of death. The first he does by his life when he walked among us on this planet. The second he does by his death when he hung on a cross. When he took our sin to that cross, you and I were on his mind, as the song says. This is an everlasting gospel, and God cries out, to us from the pages of Scripture. One day the disciple Thomas said to Jesus, Lord, we know not where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus said unto him, I am the way. I am the way, the truth and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. You must have a perfect righteousness to get into heaven, and that is one thing we do not have. Christ's perfect life of righteousness is offered to us as a gift. Our response is an act of faith in accepting the free gift. The Christian is required to present to God a perfect righteousness that can meet the requirements of the law of God. The law requires perfect righteousness in the tiniest action of thought, of word, and of deed. Absolute perfection. Man does not possess that. Paul tells us, by the deeds of the law shall no flesh be justified. The law has been kept and fulfilled by only one man on this planet, and that man is Jesus Christ. And this is why we speak of Jesus' righteousness in Romans 5. This is the ultimate supernatural resource, so Christ's perfect life answers to our lack of righteousness. The death and resurrection answers to the sentence of death on us all. That he sends the Holy Spirit, which is the answer to our sinful lives. Therefore, Christ can walk with us and live in us. This faith we develop as a gift 
And it means we trust to another man's righteousness and not our own. We depend for our salvation entirely on what God has done through his Son. I do not look to myself and depend on what I find there. Jesus says, look unto me, all the ends of the earth, and be ye saved. Isaiah 45, 22. We do not discover God. He reveals himself to us in Jesus of Nazareth. This is the most astounding event that has ever happened in the history of 6,000 years of our world. This is the only act that can save our world and can save our souls. Man's salvation is determined about our response to what God has done in his Son. What we do with our invitation from God is, is of supreme importance to him. He is waiting for us to proclaim that, to look to Jesus, the author and the finishers of our, of our faith. Paul writes in Hebrews 12.2, Looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, for the joy that was set before him. He endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. So Jesus is telling us, as he went to the cross, it was a joy. The scriptures tell us there is salvation in none other other than Jesus and him crucified. We find this in Acts 4. This frees us from having to prove our own righteousness. His righteousness removes all our guilt and the death sentence that hangs over us. The cross is a final verdict from God that never has to be reenacted. Re Life-saving grace happened at the cross. We can rejoice in that. Perfect love cast out all fear. Perfect love cast out all fear. 1 John 4.18 there is now no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus, Romans 8.1. This puts an end to all our boasting. We must be captured by Jesus Christ. This means bringing everything we do seven days a week into a relationship with Jesus, our Lord. So is it grace or is it merit? We'll look at that this morning through the new glasses we have and the window on heaven and those who will be there. This brings us to the age-old question, grace or merit. This question was asked by the early church 2,000 years ago, and that is why Paul wrote so much about it in the New Testament. I want to know what Jesus said about this. It is always a safe place to be, asking Jesus what he says about a subject. Jesus is my salvation about grace or merit. There is a fundamental difference. So today in the sermon, I would suggest that we do take a look through new glasses and through a window into that heaven of the future to see what kind of people populate that magnificent Garden of Eden. Restored. Revelation 21.1, John pens these words, And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth have all passed away. So now we come to the Pharisee and the publican, You've heard the story perhaps a thousand times, but let's take new glasses this morning and see if we can learn something new. It's told to us in Luke 18.10 and onward. So today we plan to look at biblical stories and parables to see what kind of people we will see through that window. Jesus told the story of a parable of two men who came to the church to pray and worship, a Pharisee and a publican, they both came into the temple to pray one day. You know the story well, but let's see 
if we can see something different. They were compared by Jesus, and we can also compare them this morning in our own heart and mind. At first sight, it appears we find a good man and a bad man standing in the temple to pray. First of all, we can tell something about them because of their posture. The Pharisee stands there with his head uplifted, arms up to heaven, eyes up to heaven, contrasted by the publican who collects taxes for the Romans and often takes advantage of people by overtaxing them and fills his pockets with much of it. This man stands afar off over in the narthex of the temple with his eyes turned toward the ground. We see him there beating on his chest, just looking at the two men there. It is very interesting. What are they saying? Let us go there and look this morning and listen. The Pharisee starts at, Lord, I thank thee that I am not like other men. I pay tithe. I fast twice a week. And I give to the poor. But the publican beats on his chest and says, Lord, have mercy. Me, a sinner. He does not say a sinner, but the sinner. This reminds us of Paul saying of himself, I am the chief of sinners. Let's listen in as Paul writes in 1 Timothy 1.15. This is a faithful saying, says Paul, and worthy of all acceptance that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. And yet he wrote most of our New Testament. We find here the ultimate confession of guilt and asking for forgiveness. Now where will Jesus take his stand between these two men? The most likely thing from a human standpoint is that both of these men are lost and are sinners. But Jesus does the unexpected thing. He says that the man who leaves justified in the eyes of God is the publican. Of all people, the publican. One man pleads for himself merit. The other pleads for himself mercy. One just tells God how good he is. Jesus says the publican will have mercy and God accepts him. If you would have been one of the publican's victims, you might not have been very happy about this. Or if this man would have reported you to the Romans, they had beaten you, you would not have wanted the publican to get off so easily. You may have admired the stately Pharisee and thought he was the better man. After all, he was thanking God for all he had done in his life. And he did it week after week. Jesus always has a surprise. And Jesus sets up this story for either mercy or merit. Jesus takes his stand on the side of mercy. We are saved always and forever by mercy and grace, not by merit. This is what Jesus is teaching us here. Heaven's ways are so different than man's ways. We will unravel the Pharisee just a little bit. He sees himself as a good man, and he probably is pretty good. However, he played with the law to make himself look good. What character did the Pharisee have? Did he have a white robe of Christ's righteousness? Jesus once said, where your treasure is, there you, will your heart be also. Matthew 6, 21. There was the, where was the Pharisee's treasure? Well, he thought it was in himself. It was in himself, he thought. I am the treasure God is looking for. It is so sad he was not ready for heaven. He will perhaps not be there. Jesus said it well, the publican went home justified, not the Pharisee. So looking through the window, we see a sinful publican 
but whose heart was changed because God gave him mercy. We see the publican up there through our window with a white robe of Christ's righteousness, but only the white robe qualified him for heaven. That's what Jesus says in this parable. Of course, we realize that when he saw the mercy of God, he changed his life. From a human standpoint, not too bad. In spite of this, this man goes away unjustified. The publican went home justified. There is nothing you can do to make God love you more. There is nothing you can do to make him love you less. Our salvation is not dependent on our achievement or our merit, but on the mercy of God. How long has it been since you and I beat ourselves on our own chest? How long since we cried out for mercy? How long since did you dare look up to heaven? How long since on your knees have you cried out for mercy? Jesus involved us in another story, and we will ask him the same question again. Is it grace or is it merit, Jesus? Jesus often, as recorded in Scripture, contrasts two people to make his point. And again, you've heard this story so many times, but let's look through our glasses and our window this morning to see if we can discover perhaps something different. Simon the Pharisee and Mary from Magdala. We have two people again, but this time not in the temple, but in the banquet room, in a home. One of these people is the owner of the banqueting room, Simon by name. Now you must know that this is the same Simon who was healed of leprosy by Jesus. He may have wanted to show his gratitude for healing by inviting Jesus to this banquet. But there is more, much, much more to the story. What better way to draw a big crowd to your house than to have a man come to the party who was raised from the dead, being Lazarus, and also have a man present who raised him from the dead. That was the situation here. That would be a real crowd pleaser. So we have Simon the Pharisee, Jesus, and Lazarus, and there were many other guests as well. There was also an uninvited guest. You know who it was. Somehow finds her way inside the room, a woman. She is known by those present at the dinner as a woman of the night, a prostitute. Men knew her well and knew where to find her. Now Simon is a Pharisee, and Simon is outwardly a good man. He invites Jesus to come eat with him and his guests. The woman was, had heard Jesus will be there, so she comes in uninvited. And I invite you this morning to go with us into that room and observe what happens. Jesus is about to give another insight into heaven's way of doing things and heaven's way of thinking about salvation. This woman had obviously saved her money to buy this expensive perfume. It is estimated that this alabaster box of expensive ointment was nearly a year's wages for her. The disciples in Judas estimated its value as 300 diners, and a diner in that day was equivalent of one day's work. So she represented nearly a year's wages. Her plan was to anoint Jesus with this perfumed ointment. Remember, this was seven days before Jesus went to the cross. She was able to slip in unnoticed. Remember, Jesus had saved her life earlier from stoning by some of these same Pharisees. She finds her way inside the house and finds where Jesus is. She comes up beside him. She takes out the alabaster box of ointment, but things do not go too well. The sight of the man who saved her from death causes her to begin weeping, and she cries uncontrollably. 
She cannot control it. Things are going all wrong. Her tears begin falling and they fall on Jesus' feet. She is embarrassed and she impulsively kisses his feet, according to the scriptures, then takes her hair and starts wiping her tears from Jesus' feet. Picture that, if you will. This is not like she had planned at all. Everything is going wrong. In the excitement, she apparently dropped the box of perfume and it spilled. The perfume permeates the whole room. And she, through her tears, takes some of the ointment and anoints Jesus' head and his feet. Now Simon is watching all of this, and Simon is thinking something in his heart. He does not know Jesus can read his thoughts. Simon is thinking, I know Jesus healed me from leprosy, but I'm not so sure he's a prophet now. If Jesus knew what sort of woman this was, he would not allow such a woman to touch him, let alone allow her to give him a gift of expensive perfume. Simon thinks, I invited him here because I thought he was a prophet, but now I do not think he is. Look at him with this woman. So Simon, in his heart, passes judgment on the woman and also passes judgment on Jesus. But Jesus came to read his thoughts, and he can do so. Jesus looks over at Simon and says to him, Simon, I have somewhat to say to you. Oh, oh, something is about to happen here. It might be scary if you were there, and Jesus said to you, I have somewhat to say to you. Simon is suddenly quite nervous. I can imagine his knees knocking, and he had sweaty palms, perhaps. Remember, this is happening in front of his guests. Simon says, well, tell me, Lord. Jesus says, Simon, I want to tell you a story. You know, Jesus is always telling stories. Came from the throne room of the universe and told us stories. These two debtors were forgiven of their debt. The owner said to one who owed $10, you do not have to pay me back, you are forgiven. He said to a second debtor who owed him a million dollars, now you owe me a million dollars, but you know you don't have to pay me back. I'm going to forgive you of that debt. Then Jesus said to Simon, now Simon, who of these two men do you think would love the man who forgave them the most? Well, Simon answers the Lord, well... I suppose it would be the man who was forgiven the most. Jesus said, Simon, you are right. Jesus did this in such a way that only Simon and Mary understood what he was really saying and the meaning of this story. Here Jesus gives a fundamental principle of the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is saying that whosoever is forgiven much loves much. Remember, David said in, under inspiration in Psalms 39.1, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Then Jesus turns to Simon and says, Simon, you invited me to your house. Jesus had no qualms about being very direct when it was appropriate, did he? But since I've been here, you never washed my feet, but this woman has kissed my feet and washed my feet with her tears. Simon, you never dried my feet, but this woman has dried my feet with her hair. Simon, you never anointed my head or my feet with ointment, but this woman has anointed my head and my feet with perfumed ointment. Remember, this was seven days before Jesus went to the cross. So we have two basic forms of religion. We have here two basic things we must see. The greatest distance in the universe is the distance between the head and the heart. Simon had a head religion. Mary had a heart religion. 
How long has it been since you wept for your sinfulness? Do we even see our sinfulness? Do we even understand our sinfulness? How long has it been since you felt that thrill through your being because you were forgiven? Jesus here is committed to the principle of mercy. Mercy instead of merit. He was committed to the principle that forgiveness will lead to love. Oh, there it is. Forgiveness of people who realize their sinfulness, they get away with nothing. Jesus made an amazing statement about this event at Simon's house. Quote, Whosoever, Wheresoever this gospel shall be preached throughout the whole world, this also that she hath done shall be spoken of for a memorial of her. Mark 14, 9. Now, it seems to me that's a guarantee of Mary being in that new earth. If we could look through the window, I think we'd see her there. So countless times and for thousands of years, from then until the coming of Jesus, this story has been and will be told according to Jesus' prophecy. Well, this seems to me to say that Mary will be in the new earth with Jesus and that her story would be told till the end of time. So she will wear the white robe of righteousness, qualifying her to enter the heaven above. Now note that he did not say this about anybody else in all of Scripture. He did not say this about feeding the 5,000 on the mountainside. He did not say this about calming of the storm of Galilee, that this story would be told until the end of time, about the healing of the ten lepers, about the healing of old blind Bartimaeus, about the healing of the two devil-possessed men on the mountains. He did not say this even about the raising of Lazarus from the dead. But he did say these words about Mary, who kept coming to Jesus seven times and finally was healed. And we will meet her in the heaven above. We look through our window then, and we can see her there, kneeling at Jesus' feet, just as she did, just as she did, and had that wonderful privilege of being the first one to meet Jesus after the resurrection. And she felt, fell and knelt, knelt at his feet. This honor was reserved for her. And these amazing words for this woman of the night, whose life he saved from stoning and from a terrible embarrassment at the banquet at Simon's house. Mary from Magdala was one of the few brave ones who went to the cross, and she was stronger than the rough-hewn disciples who fled, save one, that being John. From a human standpoint, everything seemed lost at the cross. Jesus' life seemed a total failure. Let me ask you, what was going on in the mind of another Mary? Mary, the mother of Jesus. All this is such a terrible waste and mistake, she must have thought. After all, it was she that told the servants at the first miracle of Jesus at the wedding in Cana, do what he tells you to do. Just go do it. She had some idea about his special miraculous power, or she would never have said those words. Now everything seemed horribly wrong. All the hours of education and training she had poured into Jesus was wasted, she must have thought. She, along with the disciples, still hoped that he would show his power and come down from that cross and deliver himself from these murderous enemies. 
He was hanging there on the cross, stretched out between earth and heaven, a parable in itself of God reaching down to save men, you and I, from eternal loss. The feet that had walked on the water of Lake Galilee and the feet that had walked to the home of Jairus the Pharisee, where Jesus had raised his 12-year-old daughter from death, yes, those feet were now nailed to the cross. Those hands that had touched the two blind men at Jericho and healed their blindness, can you even imagine what it would be like to be blind and then suddenly see? His hands that had touched the beard of the dead man, the son of the widow of Nain, and Jesus raised him to life. Yes, those same hands that had washed the disciples' feet, yes, these hands were now both nailed to the cross so that you and I might have our sins forgiven. His head that was so often been bowed in prayer, receiving strength from his Father, his mind that had constantly sought to comfort and heal, was now crowned with a crown of thorns until the blood was coming down. Above Jesus, hanging there on the cross, a sign was written in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin, as you remember, Jesus, the King of the Jews. The evil religious rulers asked Pilate to change the sign. They said, please change it. He said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate, knowing their hate, despised them and told them, What I have written, I have written. There was a power far above Pilate in the Jewish leaders that put that sign above the sacred head, crowned with thorns. How could the words of Jesus be true? He was, from a human standpoint, helpless as he hung there. But yet, ringing down the quarters of time, we have these words of comfort and cheer and to bring in hope of attending that banquet in heaven. John penned under inspiration from Jesus these words again of Revelation 19.9. Blessed are they which are called unto the marriage supper of the Lamb. Jesus also said, I am the bread of life. I that cometh unto me, he that cometh unto me will never hunger. He that believeth on me shall never thirst. Everyone which believeth on me may have eternal life. I will raise him at the last day. He that believeth on me hath everlasting life. That means right now. First John tells us over and over again. Never forget HMS Richard Sr.'s sermon on that. So beautiful. Multiple times in First John, the word hath is there. You can have eternal life right now and you do have it. If you just trust Jesus and give your life to him. I ask you, how can this dying man on the cross have said these words? He is either insane or he is the Son of God. There's no in-between. John envisioned, as recorded in Revelation, when he saw the risen Christ at the right hand of God's throne, when he was envisioned, looking up there at that sanctuary throne. He said, I fell at his feet as dead. I turned to see the voice that spake with me, one like unto the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the foot. And his hair was like white like wool and white as snow. And his eyes were as a flame of fire. And his feet like unto fine brass as if they burned in a furnace. And his eyes as a flame of fire. He was desperately trying to describe what he saw. And his voice, his voice as the sound of many waters. And his countenance was as the sun shineth in all its strength 
And he laid his right hand on me, saying unto me, Jesus, put his hand on John. Fear not, I am the first and the last. I am he that liveth and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And have the keys of hell and of death. So if you go to sleep, it doesn't matter. Jesus has you safely in his arms until he comes. Ah, there is a secret. A dying king on a cross has the keys of hell and of death, and he has the forevermore. As he was dying and saying these words, Father, forgive them, for they don't even know what they're doing. He was thereby taking in all the sinners of all time, from Eden to the end of the world. He died for everyone who should ever live on this planet. Everyone is freely offered, Jesus said, whosoever will may come. When he said that, he meant exactly what he said, whosoever will may come and accept the invitation of salvation. Have you misplaced your invitation? Have you forgotten that you received it? Well, let us read it again from Revelation 19, 9. And he saith unto me, Write, Blessed are they which are called unto the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he saith unto me, These are the true sayings of God. If we can this morning then transpose ourselves to the banquet table in heaven, I understand that we will be able to see from one end to the other of that table. We will have new eyes and glorified bodies. Millions of people will be there. We will eat from the tree of life. We will celebrate eternity to come and celebrate Jesus, our friend and our Savior that we have known so well on this earth. Falling at his feet as did Mary at the tomb of the resurrection and as did John in vision and Daniel in vision. Would you trade some earthly pleasure or treasure for your seat at the banquet table? Would you trade some earthly pleasure or treasure for eternity? I can think of no better song to sing as we close than Song of Heaven and Homeland. Please let's all join in page 472, Song of Heaven and Homeland. The beautiful melody and the words should inspire us.
God, this morning we've looked through glasses and through a window at that new Eden being prepared for us right now. And the redeemed of all ages will one day be there. May we learn how to live here and treat our fellow men as you would treat them as we await your return. May we learn to create characters as we develop that qualify us for heaven And then Jesus will give us our own white robe to wear at the wedding feast. Revelation 19. O God, to this end, may we all be there is our prayer. Remembering that always it's about grace, never about our merit. In Jesus' name, amen.